Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. All right. Hello, everyone out there. I'm going to start off with a Bruce Lee quote for today. And that quote is this, long-term consistency trumps short-term intensity. And today's guest has spent a career perfecting the balance between the two. And you've probably consumed a lot of his thoughtful and insightful content uh, on LinkedIn. He's been in the business for a couple of decades at companies that you know, Log Me In, Car Gurus, Drift, Owl Labs, and most recently, Tive. He's a founding member of the Revenue Collective, and he's a limited partner with Stage 2 Capital. He's a polar bear. He's a marathon runner. He's an ultra marathon runner. Josh Allen, welcome to Coach to Scale. Matt, thank you very much. That was a, that's a flattering intro you gave there. Appreciate that. <laughs> the best one I love is polar bear. But if you want to know what polar bear is, go look at Josh's posts uh, on LinkedIn, Pride of Bowdoin. Josh, let, let's, let's get right into it. I'm glad, by the way, I'm glad uh, it's Halloween. I'm glad you don't have like a Bill's helmet on or anything like that. I'm sure you I, get that all the time. I do. And it's the one helmet you'll never find on my head as a lifelong Patriots fan. There we go. Excellent. So Josh, you've been in this business and you've been passionate about coaching and developing people, leading teams, running businesses. There's a lot of myths in this business. Josh, what's a common myth about coaching and, and leading salespeople or sales leaders that you believe is misguided or, or perhaps even misunderstood? Yeah, I think there's a few things we could we could get into with that. The, the first thing that always comes to my mind when you're talking about coaching and leading is the belief that we actually, you know, before we got on here, we talked a little bit about the fact that there's there can be outside influence on someone in terms of how ready they are to be coached at any given moment or any given day. And so I think one of the myths that exists is that everyone is going to be able to put their best foot forward into the and the ability to receive the coaching on any given day. And I think as a manager, you want to believe, because typically if you've risen the ranks, if you've gone from individual contributor to manager, to director of sales, to VP of sales, you've seen some things before. And your belief is that you can take those things that you've seen and directly apply them to every individual with the belief that, that they're going to get better. I think one of the hard lessons learned when you step in the seat for the first time is that the things that might have made you successful aren't necessarily going to make that individual person you're trying to coach successful. So the biggest myth I remember having to bust my first time as a manager at Log Me In was, was this concept that I could take what worked for me and what made mm -hmm. me the top performer in that business. I was two years in a row as the number one salesperson that logged me in that I could take those things that made me have success and then just directly layer it over the, the team that I was responsible for and they'd see the same type of results. It just doesn't work that way. Like individual humans are, 
are wired and built and operate differently. So the myth that you can take what works well for you when you were in the seat and mm -hmm. layer it over to those individuals is, is one that has been busted many times over. So Josh, what I hear you saying is just because something worked really well for you or the person who's getting promoted, the belief sometimes is, oh, because it worked for me, it's going to work for everybody. And that's not the case. So how do you deal with that? Because every manager that's being promoted is thinking some version of that. Correct. Yeah. And I, and I think there are things that are intrinsic to people. There are characteristics that certain people have. And so really successful salespeople tend to have some similar characteristics around their drive, their natural curiosity, their competitiveness. The really good ones have a level of self-awareness so that they can be coached and they can also take feedback from customers and react to it on the spot as opposed to just reading the script or doing mm -hmm. what they do with everybody. So I, I think there's underlying process, there's sales process, there's methodology and the common language we use, there's forecasting process, there's opportunity qualification like a med pick. There are things underneath that we want to be running like a routine. But then on top of it, there's the characteristic of the individual salesperson that makes them good. It makes them great. It makes them average. It's the part that is the hardest to interview for and is also the hardest to move. Like it's hard to move the needle on as a manager. So it's your job as a leader to be able to tap into what makes somebody tick and what that, what that part that is not inside the process that makes them good. It could be that they're just tremendous work ethic. They come from working class family, working class background. They have tremendous work ethic. They show up early. They stay late. They want to do the work, but they might be struggling with some of the skill underneath the work. So with those individuals, you have to manage to that part. You have to know that you're going to get somebody who's going to put in the time. So it's about improving the quality of the time that they're using when they're on the phone. You might have somebody else who's a little bit lazier, but has the talent. They have the natural ability to establish rapport with somebody and earn their trust very quickly on a call, but they just want to work the opportunities. They don't want to do the hard work to do the outbound dialing and the cold calls and the cold outreach. But when you get them on a deal, they're brilliant. So you have to manage that person a little bit differently. You're managing to the strengths of their skill set because you want to hold their skill set up and continue to sharpen and make that better. And then try to challenge them a little bit on the weaknesses to see if you can make incremental improvements across that so that their overall results go up. But I, I think it's hyper important for a leader to, to understand the individual strengths and weaknesses of, of every person on their team. And you mentioned a lot of this is really important to ferret out in the hiring process, which is not always easy to do. You've talked about a couple of different attributes here. You talked about drive, desire, and commitment on one side, and then you talked about um, skill, like skills and talent on the other side, right? The person who can identify, qualify, negotiate, close, but they don't want to put the work in. Uh, it's all important. Which one would you rather have on your team? The person who comes with that, that work ethic, that raw ability just to grind it out, or the person who has the talent, but is uh, using the word you use, maybe a little bit lazy, w which one is easier to coach up? Which one would you rather have on the team? I would hire a team full of people that excel on the intrinsic characteristic side versus the ones that have the established skill and knowledge. And, and here's the reason. And I'm not saying that skill and knowledge isn't important. It is. 
But to me, the intrinsics are the unteachables. Like who somebody is and how they're wired as a person, what motivates them is something that as a leader is very hard to move the needle on. Because you have, if you have a team of eight or you have a team of 20 or you have a team of 30 and you're trying to change somebody's ability to be curious, that's a really hard thing to move. Because the reason they're not curious is deeply embedded from nature nurture stuff that has happened throughout their life up until that point. And your ability to move that is going to be really, it's extraordinarily low. You're probably not going to move the dial much. Those are the unteachables. Like I classify those as the unteachables. You can, if you want to, as an individual, you can make strides against it yourself, but you have to be willing to invest the time. On the other side, you have the skills and knowledge piece. Those are the teachables. Those are the things that that you learn along the way. So you might have been taught the Sandler sales methodology. You might have been taught your sales process when you were working at Drift or Log Me In or Carburus or Salesforce or Okta or wherever. You carry that training with you everywhere that you go. You have this experience, this knowledge, this skill to lean on. You may have sold in financial services or sold in healthcare. Like you take that with you. And depending on the role that you're being hired into, sometimes that matters. If you're going to a fintech company and you're selling to people on the accounting team and you need to be able to speak their language, then that might be a prerequisite for people that you're hiring to come in with that knowledge so you don't have to teach it. But I look at it as... If I can get a blank slate on skills and knowledge and I can bring somebody in who I know is just going to be a dog and has the characteristics to compete, we can train them on the rest. And that's why I think like the best companies out there have these programs where you can bring somebody in into an early level role. Maybe it's a small business closing role. Maybe it's an SDR or BDR role. And then you can train them to become quarter carrying AEs. If you have a system where you can bring people up through that, like we did at Lock Me In, we did it at Carbrews, we did it at Drift. It is it creates a really magical environment because now you have the right characteristics that you want in your sellers and the ones who are proving it with performance and developing the skills and knowledge they need to be successful, they just take off. So you and Coach Prime out in Colorado, you're both looking for dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll put, the le- I'll put the letter on their jersey too. You put the D right on there for dog. There you go. You mentioned curious. I'm curious. How do you interview to to determine if someone is curious? What do they display? Uh, What what are the types of questions they answer? Uh, What are the types of questions you ask? How do you know that someone's curious in an interview? I I think it would be naive of me to say that you always know, but Underneath it, like the way I think about it for the, so there's seven characteristics that I interview. And I, in the interview processes that I've deployed in the last three or four companies that I've worked at, I take the intrinsic side because I think it's the hardest to get underneath. And it, it's, it's really hard to quantify. So you have to be able to distill down the qualitative data you get from it and, and try to make heads or tails of whether or not it's a red light or a green light in terms of putting somebody through the process. So I tend to take that myself and then my, my interview team, they'll work on skills, they'll work on knowledge, they'll work on past performance, and then they'll also help do either a role play or the presentation review. And so we split up who's working on what as we go through yep. the interview. And I take the intrinsic piece of it. And so like curiosity as an example, 
Um, you can ask very simple, open-ended questions. So like, tell me what you've learned about our company since before you and I got on the phone. What do you know about us? And leave it there and see what you get. And you'd be amazed at how many times you get someone who's like super high level, like they just went on the website five minutes before talking to you and they don't know a whole lot about what you do. They just saw that you were a cool company or or that you had posted a role. And so they decided to reach out. And then you get other people who they can sometimes read you back the business better than you know it. And it's like, that's right. that's what I'm looking for because you clearly have, nobody pushed you to do that. Nobody forced you to do that. You have a natural level of curiosity that made you go real deep. Curiosity also comes out in the questions they ask you. If you, there are times where I'll ask somebody a question and like I might ask them, um, you know, tell me about, uh, uh, tell me about the last time you missed a quarter and they'll give me an answer and they'll be like, that's an interesting question. Why'd you ask that? And I'll tell them. Right? Softening right? statement in a reverse like it. Yeah. And so I can come back and tell them be like, look, I'm trying to get underneath what your resiliency is like. I want to know when you miss a number, do you change the work that you're doing or do you just go at it again and keep doing the same thing and hope for a different result? Um, and I, I love when I, because that's how they're going to interact with your customers. That's how they're going to talk to other people. That's how they're going to interact with internal employees and their peers. So you want to get a sense of how do they have a conversation? How do they ask questions? How do they get underneath it? So to me, if I can ask them a few questions and then I can see how they ask me questions, I can start to get underneath curiosity. And then it tethers into something like drive, like how driven are they? How motivated are they? intrinsically, not by money, not by equity, but what motivates them to show up every day in the middle of the month, in the mid quarter of the year, in the dog days when it's hard and it's grindy, what makes you show up? Why do you care about showing up? And you can start to, these things start to link together based on their answers, based on um, how they're having a conversation with you. Josh, one of my friends, I've known him for a long time. He's a fraternity brother. He's a career enterprise level salesperson, top of the mark on that. And he mentioned recently that he was recently asked by his manager's manager, right? So second line leader, and was asked about his personal goals. And he said, Matt, I can't remember. It's been at least 10 years, right? He's 50 something. It's been at least 10 years since one of my managers asked me about my personal goals and what motivates me. And I wasn't surprised. I was like shocked, but not surprised. Mm -hmm. but why does that, what's the importance of understanding your employees' personal goals? And uh, do you see the same thing? Is it, does it not happen often? And like, why? So I think it, I think, I think the conversations happen, like it's talked about, but it's only the great leaders who do the work with their team to, to document it. And I want to mention somebody by name because this individual, he and I worked together at Cargurus and his name is Mike Conley. And he ran a big business for us there. It was our account management team who essentially handled all of the upsell, cross-sell, mm -hmm. and renewal with our existing customer base. And, and it became um, the biggest revenue generator we had. But Mike had this uncanny ability to help his team, help his managers, help his team leads, and help the individual contributors on the team 
link their personal goals to their professional goals. So what they were trying to accomplish from a quota standpoint, what they were trying to accomplish in terms of their contribution to the business, tying that to what it meant to them personally. So whether that was paying off student loan debt or buying a house for the first time, or we were at car guru. So we had a lot of, we had a lot of gearheads in the group and there's like buying that car that they had their eyes on for a long time. I can tell you, we saw some nice cars come through that parking garage after some quarters that he was so good at being able to tie those two together directly, knowing that if you change the conversation away from like daily KPIs and leaderboard and you move it toward Hey, how are we doing on that house? Are we, how close are we getting to being able to put a down payment on that house that you're looking at? Or how much student loan debt do you have? Like a, how much have you been able to chunk off and, and you, can you still, can you still get to your goal by the end of the year based on how you're pacing? That changes the dynamic and the relationship between the individual contributor and their manager and the individual contributor in their company, because now they see the company as a vehicle to be able to meet those personal goals that they've set for themselves. So I don't know how you can't tie them together. I think a lot of people have mental models of what it means to go to work and check off those goals. But until you put them down on paper, until you talk about them often and put it down, and it's something that you actually review in your one-on-ones or you review in your quarterly business reviews with your manager, it's hard to really bring them to life. And, And what it does is it creates self-accountability because now these are your personal goals that you're trying to achieve and i'm going to do everything i can as an individual contributor to try to do that because it, it makes my life better it changes my life and mike mike conley is just he's the best i've ever seen at being able to do that across a very big team and that that really stuck with me because i love seeing that and i saw what it did for his team and it really changed the dynamic and their relationship they had with work That's awesome. Shout out to Mike Conley. That's an excellent story. The the problem that I've observed over the past bunch of years is that that Mike Conley is an anomaly, unfortunately. Now, I don't believe that other pe- most people don't care. I actually think people want to help other people, right? That's the it's human nature. But something's going on and I don't know what it is. Is it the pressure? Is it just not knowing how to do it? But why aren't more leaders acting and exhibiting the behavior of Mike Conley? Yeah, I, I think it's because the, the easy thing to look at and the thing that gets dis- distributed throughout the company that happens on the, the Monday executive team meetings and is they're the numbers. It's the KPIs. It's how we do it against our revenue goal. How do we do against meetings booked last week? How do we do against pipeline generation last week? And if and when those things are off, and it's 2023, so it's off in most organizations that you and I engage with, then that's where all the focus goes. And it rolls downhill. So if it's like the CEO sees it's off, then it goes to the CRO, then it goes to the VP of sales, and it goes to the director, then it goes to the manager, and then it goes down to the individuals. And so then that ends up becoming the focus. And the softer, qualitative stuff that is related to the personal goals and talking about career development and growth and all that stuff, it can get put in the back closet and kept away from the team because of the focus on the KPIs. 
And so I think we've flipped it backwards because if you're doing it the other way and you're focused on the people, like the people growth side of it, their goals and what they're trying to accomplish, their learning and development, their training, their growth, that doesn't always come across in the spreadsheet or the slide deck at the executive meeting. And I think if you take your eye off the long-term growth and development of your team, it can create those environments where it becomes purely KPI driven and you tend to see a decent amount of attrition in those sales organizations and oftentimes a low level of quote attainment and goal attainment. So if the culture is the beatings will continue until morale improves and until the numbers improve, then ultimately that's going to result in, in higher levels of attrition, right? That's that short-term intensity versus maybe consistency of developing people under and connecting their motivation, their goals with the organization's goals. It sounds like once you do that, like you said, it changes that dynamic. You're off to the races and you probably have less attrition. Would that be fair? Yeah. And, and I do these types of environments that we've entered into where like we've now stepped out of the growth at all costs world and into the growth efficiently world. This time I think is a good time for sales organizations. I, I think 2023 is going to feel hard no matter what, but as we turn the calendar over into 2024 and sales plans get reset and I think reality gets reset for a lot of founders, a lot of CROs, a lot of CFOs, a lot of leaders and investors, it's a healthy time to be in those sales organizations. Because when you're thinking about growing efficiently, you're not just going to double the size of the team over the next 12 months. You'd, you'd rather get more out of the existing team. If we have a team that's at 40% of quota attainment and we believe we have the right people, let's get them to 70% quota attainment before we put another bum in the seat. There's no sense of hiring more people if you can actually generate more revenue with the group that you have. So I think it, it forces a refocus from CROs and CEOs and founders to say, let's get the most out of our team that we can and stop this craziness of just hiring more people and creating this human capital model that is just driving attrition. It makes it really hard to stick and be successful long-term as a salesperson. Because if you're at the back of the line in that group of 20 that they just hired, you're probably not walking into a great territory. You're probably not going to have a great start. It's going to be really hard to ramp up and get to where you're going. Even if you're amazing at what you do, it can set up a pretty bad experience. So I think my hope is that as we, we take the lessons learned in the last, call it four to six quarters and apply them to the planning models that are, that are being deployed here in 2024 and the years beyond, we get back to growing the right way. So growing the right way, growing efficiently, the, all those things make a ton of sense. I, and I hope you're right. What type of pressure and extra responsibility does that put on frontline leaders when essentially you're saying, okay, you're going to do more, but you're going to do it with less, with fewer people? Yeah, it's to me, it's it really comes down to if you're a frontline leader, and let's say the average ratio of a frontline leader is six to eight people. So if you have six to eight people on your team, your responsibility are it's those six to eight people. It's that those the individuals on that team. You are also responsible for making sure you have the right six to eight individuals in that team and that they're going to put you in the best position possible to be able to attain your number on behalf of the company. So as a frontline leader, you have to be constantly assessing, where am I coaching? Like, where am I for the eight people I have on my team? 
what are the eight individual needs? Like the one thing, and I've heard, actually, I've heard this analogy before. It's like a golf swing. If you show up to a, to a golf pro and they tell you to fix 12 different things, you're going to keep the same swing because you can't fix all those things. And in your head, you're going to be all over the place. If they tell you to just tuck your shoulder a little bit more and go hit a hundred balls, and that's the only thing you're focused on is tucking your shoulder. Guess what? You're probably going to actually start to implement some of that change. And it's the same thing with sales coaching. You have to look at your eight and think, what's the one thing we want to move the needle on and focus on that for the next month or the next quarter. And then once you see there's clear movement forward, it's like, great. Now we find the next thing that we can focus on. That's how you get more out of the existing group. And if you're the frontline leader who's committed to that group of eight, then take them to, take them to the next level. Find that thing that you can coach them on and work through with them. And that's how you start to go from 40% attainment to 45% attainment to 50% attainment, like slowly whittle away and work your way up with that group. Josh, uh, if I'm describing a, a typical scenario these days, there's that team of eight people. And let's say we're talking about one of the more top performing teams so that they're w- well over 100%. The, the manager against his or her target, they're over 100% of quota. But when you peel back the onion on that, there's one or two people that are crushing it. And there's six people that are sucking wind well under 50%. And then let's just say those two people that are crushing it, well, they're good. Like they're veterans, they're top performers, but they still have, they're not perfect. They still have room to grow. But what the manager is doing, the manager is saying, oh, yeah, these two people are crushing it. They don't need me. And the manager is spending his or her time with the people who aren't being responsive to coaching. They're sucking wind for a reason and or spending time with all the brand new people because it's a revolving door because of the culture. There's a lot of problems with the environment that I'm discussing, but I want to focus in on one part. What is the, what's the downside for the manager not paying attention to what's going on with those two top performers. I put it this way. It's the reason that I started the top quartile club, which is the sales community that I began here, which is catered toward those top performers that you described for that reason, because they aren't getting the attention and the coaching. More importantly, they're not getting the help in terms of if you're doing your job, your current job at a high level and you're a top performer, what are the things that I can help you with to design your future career steps so you can take on more responsibility? You continue with that growth mindset that you have and learning more skills and developing. And sure, it's ultimately maybe making more money, making more equity, but it's really about like, how do I continue to get better? How do I continue to grow? So you're right, that that exists in a lot of environments. And and I think it's I think it's a shame because. You're right. The top performers, they also tend to be the most headstrong. And there are managers who are intimidated by their top performers because they They break glass. They break break a lot of glass. glass. They push back. They probably have a direct pipeline to the CEO or the founder who's going to go to them and ask them questions, ask them for product feedback, ask them for feedback on how marketing's doing. And so it can be intimidating. But they're also, they've already shown the willingness to want to grow and be great. And so- they're your, I would argue, your best opportunity to get more out of the existing team. And you don't have to put all of your time there, 
but you have to put a little bit more of an equal share with that group as you're putting with with the rest of the team. And I think they they tend to get left alone and sometimes they want to be alone. But when you can do the when you can do the great work of what we talked about earlier is tying the personal goals to the professional goals. That is how I have seen the best leaders break through with their top performers who are often classified as lone wolves. But I, I think that's I think that's a lazy classification because to me, it's, it means that you're not doing the work to connect with what they're trying to accomplish. And when you have that breakthrough as a leader, you tend to open doors for more feedback, for, for more growth, for to give them more responsibility to take on. And assuming they want it, it's there for them to take. And Josh, what, what do you do when you've tried to do everything and, and work with that top performer and coach and align the personal goals to the uh, professional goals and the company goals, but that person's not responding? They're breaking a lot of get glass. They're a lone wolf, but they're putting up the numbers. You tried yeah. everything. Do you just suck it up and deal with it because they're putting up the numbers or do you, do you do something else? My perspective is you suck it up. In large part, because think about the Manny Ramirez's of the world or the Chad Ojosinkos of the world or all of the wide receiver divas that have played in the NFL. Um, there's a reason teams put up with them and continue to pay them top dollar. It's because they put up numbers. And so long as they're not toxic, they're not a poison okay. in the well, I do think you, you put up with them. And I have worked with some people who have been absolute top performers that really struggle to work with our sales process. They really struggle to put stuff in the CRM and is we never lost sight. So we never said it's okay. You don't have to do that at all. We always continue to coach, continue to give feedback. But if you are performing and you're putting up big numbers, in my mind, it grays out everything else underneath it. So if you don't need to make 50 calls, if you don't need yeah. to book 10 meetings and you're going to get to your number through your way, I'm okay with that. And I also know that your way may not be transferable to anybody else on the team because it's something that you have developed over a long period of time with your own experiences. So as, as a sales leader and as someone who is thinking on behalf of the company, if you have somebody who's performing and they're not toxic to your team, they're actually like, they're a good teammate, then it's okay. Okay. So you qualify because we, I, I didn't agree with you right away. I'm glad you brought something that I would say, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear. It's actually the honesty award because that's what most leaders do is they suck it up. But you did go back and qualify. You said, as long as they're not toxic. Yeah. Right. And I'll give examples of what I mean by toxic. Like there, um, in, in a past life, I had the top performer on the team from a booking standpoint who was uh, essentially stealing leads from places that were outside of their territory and, and booking them. And it took us some time from an operation standpoint to find it. And when we did, I made the decision to let that person go, which was fought by some members of the senior executive team because of their performance. There was a willingness to look the other way. And in, in my mind, that was, if you have that precedent on your team, like I, I'm sure there were other people on the team that knew it was happening. And it just Absolutely. It took a while to bubble up. But if you have that precedent on your team and, and you know about it as a leader, and you don't cut it out, it becomes a cancer that grows in the team. And so that to me is toxic. If you're doing things that are that are actually taking away from other team members, and then as a leader, 
if I allowed that to happen after knowing it, that just that poisons the well big time. Yeah. When you take action and, and let that toxic person, when you release them back into the economy, everybody on the team knows that like, finally they did something about this person. I got to ask you about this, especially what's going, like a lot of craziness going on in the world right now. As when I know that you recorded a podcast with my Sandler colleague, James Abraham, and James is based in Tel Aviv in Israel. And in the middle of that podcast recording, as you wrote so nicely in your LinkedIn post, you had to stop the interview because there was, there were rockets coming in and they had to go to their shelter. And then James came back and did the interview. Wow. Talk about mentally tough there. Go check that interview out. But the question I have for you, Josh, is whether it's something stark like that, or whether it's just someone's just dealing with a, a, a divorce, a, a breakup in a relationship, their dog died, they're having a, a bad day, like something's going on in their world. Is there a responsibility of the leader, manager, leader, is there a responsibility for them to understand what's going on in the lives of their people so that they can help in some small way to clear the path so that they can show up to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. And foundationally, I think as a human, you have to enter the equation thinking to yourself, everybody's going through something. Everyone's going, everyone is dealing with something, whether it's subtle and small and they're processing it well, or it's big, like what we have been seeing in Israel and what I talked to James about or in Lewiston, Maine, what we saw this week, like it, those are major catastrophic, horrendous events. And then there's all the minor stuff that really affects someone and it, it runs the gamut. And what may be a small problem to one individual could be a big problem to another individual. And it's not on us to be able to, to tell them what's big and what's small. I do think as a leader, it's incumbent on you and it's your responsibility to understand what makes your people tick. And that includes the things that are affecting them. And so if you're scheduled to have a one-on-one in a deep coaching session that day and something's off, my advice always is spend your time there. Be their friend, be the leader they need, be the someone that they just have to talk to or voice something. It could be personal, it could be professional, it could be a lot of different things. I used to do something in past labs when I was at, when I was at Log Me In and Car Gurus. I think we did a little bit of it at Drift. I used to just set aside hours during the week that anybody could sign up for and come in and talk. And it could be about anything. It could be about work stuff. It could be about personal stuff. It could be about career goals and opportunities, but they were set aside for that purpose of, I, I just, I wanted people to feel like they could come and and talk about it. And at first, I think people were a little intimidated. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to go in there and sound stupid. I don't want to say something right. like he doesn't want to hear about what's going on in my personal life. And it was like, and then after a few repetitions, and I think people coming through, and then telling their peers, oh, it was actually a, it was a good conversation. It was it was light, and sometimes they'd be more formal, and sometimes they'd be more informal, but. It was the best way for me to connect with the team and, and understand how some of the individuals were feeling and, and maybe get some feedback on my own leadership and what I was and was not doing for them. 
I, I think as a manager, if you can create that two-way door yeah. between yourself and it's not the manager looking down, it's, no, 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 we're in this together. Like we're trying to solve the same problem. We're trying to attain the same goals. So let's, and the better we know each other, let's get on the same page. I will tell you, it, it can be hard. The hard, It's hard to, it's hard to carve out the time unless you are very deliberate about doing it. And if you make that time sacred and hold on to it, it can be the most rewarding that you have. And everybody will always make the excuse of, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I have too many other things to do. It's worth it to do it because those are the, those are the best relationships I developed within my teams was when we had that constant two-way door available. And, and Josh, you're talking all about, I think, going that extra mile and setting up those as a CRO and setting up that time where people can come in. I, I hear a lot, really good people that are in leadership and frontline management positions or senior leaders who say, I don't have time to coach my people. We need to get to the number. What do you say? to that person who says, I don't have time to coach. I want to, but I, I don't have time. I just don't know how you get to the number without coaching. Like to me, it's just a, it's a fundamental responsibility in your job as a leader, specifically in sales and customer success. When mm -hmm. there's a, when there is a number attached to it and it's um, your ability to execute on the process is, is, like when we think about sales processes and methodologies, like I always say, those are installed for the average. Like it's the middle of the bell curve that you're trying to solve for there. You're trying to take somebody in the sales organization who might be right on the line, they might be on the 50th percentile, and that's who you're trying to help so that they have a establish a routine and a framework they can lean on to be able to walk this deal through or establish this customer relationship. So when somebody's trying to do that, and as a leader, you're not spending the time to help them with practicing their swing, because all the, otherwise they're just practicing in live fire events. So they're practicing with your customers. They're practicing on, on their calls. That's not practice. That's the difference between making the number and missing the number. So to help them get better with those skills and the development of those skills, I don't see how you get to your number without taking the time to do it. Yeah. In sales, unlike a lot of other professions, we practice in the game on the phone or in front of the client. It'd be like, I know you ran the Boston Marathon last year. It'd be like, it'd be like trying to practice the, on marathon day, just show up and, hey, let me try to figure out how, my, how I'm doing here. It's, yep. it's crazy, but it happens. So let's, as we segue and, and close out here, let's talk about you a little bit. You started Top Quartile Club. I know you touched on it briefly. Can you expand on that? Why'd you launch Top Quartile? Yeah. So I initially launched it for the reason that we were talking about before, where it's just the, there's so many great performers across B2B SaaS that have done great things. I, I think that the greatest compliment you could give somebody in a sales role is talking about their consistency and performance. And when you see somebody who's at the top of the leaderboard month after month or quarter after quarter or year after year, it's a really hard thing to do. And so they're doing something special. They're doing something that is well above average in what we see in our industry. But they're also, they're not getting, they're not necessarily getting the development investment from the company, from the managers, from the team, because they spend their time with the middle of the pack. They spend their time trying to develop the B's and C's because they just 
we take the A's for granted. I've been guilty of it in the past too. We take the A's for granted because they're going to perform and put up numbers and they're making money, so they must be happy. They need more than that. They need to understand how to design their own careers. They need to understand how to think about asking for things from the business in the right way. So I really created it because I wanted this community established of the best so they can compare notes and talk to each other about what they're seeing, what they're doing, how they're doing it. But then also realize there's a big wide world that's outside their four walls of their current company that could be a long-term opportunity for them to go after. It, there, it has also veered off organically into including a coaching component for Top Quartile Club for leaders. I do some, I do some teaching in Pavilion for CRO school. You've seen my posts have been pretty active in the last couple of months and it's resonating with people. So I've been asked if I do one-on-one coaching for frontline managers, for directors, VP level, and even for C-level where they're looking for guidance on kind of strategic plan, how to work with investors in the board, how to navigate a first-time founder, CEO, that type of stuff. And that has been a lot of fun. Like I love both. I love coaching, period. Could be coaching my daughter's hockey team or her lacrosse team or individuals in leadership or, or individual contributors who are trying to go through this path for the first time. That's the most fun part of the job for me. So to be able to carve out this little community and this group to be able to do that has been really been a passion project. Awesome. So how do people, I have another question for you, but how do people get in touch with you if they, they just want to learn more about what you're doing or coaching or just pick your brain a little bit? Are you open to that? Yeah, for sure. Direct message on LinkedIn. A lot of people will do that and I'm open to that. Or you can email me. It's just josh at topquartileclub.com. And I tend to be pretty quick to respond. But also on the website, if you go to the website, my calendar link is there. So if you wanted to book 20 minutes or a half hour to chat, learn more about it, or even just get some help. Again, I enjoy doing this stuff. I'm happy to do that. Cool. Make sure we link that in the show notes. Josh, two more questions. People who are passionate about coaching, who love coaching, who think it's fun, like you just said, tend to have benefited from really good coaching or that behavior was modeled uh, very well for them. Can you tell us about a time that you were the recipient of really good coaching? Yeah, look, it, it, it can go back, Matt, as far as, as youth hockey, if we want to start there. But when you've, been, when you've been around, great. I was fortunate to grow up in a youth hockey program. Like, I loved hockey growing up. I was fortunate to grow up in a youth hockey program that- By the way, know, Josh, it, I, I got to interrupt because I, I keep seeing this picture on uh, social media, on my Facebook feed. It's of Terry O'Reilly and Stan Jonathan. And uh, man, the-, the, the those guys are great to watch. I don't know if, you, if you're, I'm a little older than you, but those guys are great to watch. They don't look so good these days, but man, I still wouldn't want to mess with them. Yeah, same. Knuckles Island is another one. He's, there's some, yeah, you grew up in that era and you were, you were a brawler. You're, you're probably not doing so hot right now. It took you off the I, game. You're talking about hockey. Yeah, but it's, that's when I had two coaches when I was 11 and 12 years old. One of them went on to win two state championships and the other went on to coach division one hockey at Merrimack and then some other high school programs in the state. And you don't know until you look back at how good the coaching was. I was totally spoiled. You don't find that in youth hockey anymore where you have coaches like that and then carry that forward through, through high school sports and through college sports. And then ultimately into the work world where you have what 
one of my mentors at, at Log Me In, who helped me incredibly, was Seth Shaw, who's got on to be CRO at Airtable and Envision and these like wonderful companies and built big businesses. He's the son of two teachers. And he, he had that approach. He was a teacher and a coach by nature. It wasn't forced. It was when you sat down with him, no matter who you are, if you were uh, an SDR, you were on the user services team, you were a sales manager, you were a direct report, he was going to spend the time coaching, teaching, and talking in a way that you wanted to be accountable to his expectations. And that, like, that really... Yeah. landed and resonated and, and stuck with me. And, and I have a similar approach where I believe in setting high expectations so that people can achieve things they didn't think were previously achievable. And when you've been around that type of coaching throughout your career and throughout your entire life, it, it creates a, a mentality and a framework and an approach that when you get in the room with the right people who are receptive to that form of coaching and feedback, it can cre really create some magic and people start to tap into and see things. This is why I love like the ultra marathon world is nobody sets out thinking they can do this thing the first time. And then you do it and you think, what are our, what are my limits? Like how much further can I go? How much more can I do? And that mental framework of keeping your mind open enough to be able to receive and then apply and then see results that you didn't think possible is pretty special. Yeah. It, the mind, it, it's so powerful, especially, and it's really evidenced in the, those endurance sports. I recently ran into a guy down in Key West, a friend of my stepfather. He's an older guy. He's in his 70s. He might even be 80. And he does this swim around Key West. I can't remember how many miles that is, but it's a lot of miles. And he, I, I said, how do you do that? I said, how, how do you keep up? Like, how do you do the whole thing? And he's, you just keep once you just keep doing another stroke until you're done. And he was dead serious. And I said, no, really? Said, no, listen, that that's it. Like it, you, you don't think about it. You just keep, you find ways to think about other stuff you, and, and you just keep stroking in the water until they blow the whistle, until you go to the finish line and you commit to yourself that you're not going to do anything to stop beforehand. That's it. And I've, that, that was a couple of years ago, actually. And I, it's resonated with me. It just, how do you do it? Just keep going. Just keep, keep going. The beauty of it, Matt, is that the people who can simplify it like that, if you can make it that simple, it's no more complicated than that. If you can put one stroke in front of the other, put one foot in front of the other in sales, if you can make that next call, if you can commit to yourself that you're going to do certain activities before you check your phone, before you go get a coffee, before you do whatever distraction you have around you, it is a really powerful thing. It, and that's what creates consistency. That's what creates the, the repetitiveness and the repeated motion. It's what creates long-term success. And so it's, yeah, if you can simplify it like that, you make your life easier in the long run. Amen to that. Josh, last question. You've been doing this for a while and some people who are just getting into the business have no idea the types of things that happened 15, 20 years ago in this uh, crazy business in, in enterprise software and B2B SaaS. What's one of those crazy stories that you remember from the old days that wouldn't just wouldn't happen today? I think back then, and I really feel like I'm sounding like my dad now, but back then- <laughs> We've become was, our parents. Yeah. 
it was a simpler time. Like it was, and and I think I actually look at the teams today, and I posted about this not too long ago. I think we're getting to a point where we're over-tooling our teams. We're giving them too much information. We're giving them too much stuff to do that is not selling. And and I think they're starting to push back and get frustrated with that. And if I look back to my very first sales job when I was selling the eighth-ranked antivirus in the world to companies that all had antivirus, like this was Top 10, though. What, top 10? Yeah. There might have only been 10 companies total, but we were top 10. Um, it, it was hard. It was a hard job. And we had uh, a list of companies to call out to. Most of them didn't have contacts, so you had to build that yourself. Um, we had a really poorly constructed, I hate to even call it a CRM. This is pre-Salesforce days. So this was, it was called Goldmine. Yeah. And, and we had email and a phone. And that was it. And there's something to be said about how simple that was. And w- would I have wanted a tool that gave me more information and more data? Of course, like I would have loved LinkedIn or Zoom Info or some other things that I could have used. But there was something to be said for how simple the job was. And, and you could really build out your math. Like you could key in on, I know if I make a hundred dials today, I'm going to have three to five conversations of those three to five conversations. If I find one opportunity, that's a really good day. That's a good day. Yeah. And you, and then you build your quarter and your year based on that math. And you held yourself, the reps that held themselves accountable, those are the ones that performed. And, it, and if you believed in the long-term results of doing that every day, and that you were going to be successful, it, it could work. And, and, and I learned that at a very young age. And I feel super fortunate to have come up through the system in a company like that, where you are selling an absolute commodity to, to a, and that you only are going to get a, somebody on the phone who had a, a virus issue or has a pricing and contract issue or has something going on with their existing vendor that they don't like. Yep. And so it was a math problem. And in skill and knowledge and knowing that like when you got that one conversation, you better make a count because you're not going to get another one for a while. But I, I think the early 2000s, that's what selling was. It was yeah. it, whether you're doing it on the phone or you were doing it face to face, it was largely a math problem. And then you had to be deep. You had to be the expert because the buyers didn't have the expertise that you had. You had the knowledge. And now everybody has the knowledge and the sales reps all have the tools and the marketers all have the tools. I think the difference now is that you have to be exceptional at proving that you're different. And whereas before, if you got somebody on the phone or you showed up at their office back in 2002, you were different because you were there and you were talking to them. So it was about the relationship that you established if you're selling a commoditized product. Now, like everybody has a bunch of information oftentimes before they have their first conversation with you. So you need to be able to clearly differentiate what, why your product or service is the best match to solve their problem. Cause they all, a lot of the products sound the same. And so I do think it's harder. I think it's harder now than it ever has been before. So the skill and knowledge has to be so far up, but also what is old is new again. So I think if you can differentiate yourself by going and showing up on site and meeting with a customer, buying a plane ticket and actually going there, Guess what? That it works because nobody's doing it. So be different. Take the time to be different. You can't be perceived as better unless you're perceived as different. And uh, what you just talked about, what's old is new again. You know, the phone. Uh, 
you know, there was a, a survey out there and, you know, the average uh, executive buyer says they maybe get one phone call a week from a salesperson. Everybody's doing it on email and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever. Pick up the damn phone. Um, you know, exactly. be exactly. different. So, Josh, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. We covered a lot of the ground. We talked about consistency and the importance of curiosity goals, understanding personal goals, aligning them to organizational goals. Um, really, really awesome stuff. Any, uh, any last minute words, any advice you have for the folks uh, that are maybe just getting started in the business first line, first time managers? Yeah, I, I do think we touched on a few things, but if you're a first time manager, I want you to spend some time thinking about the leaders that you had where you learn the most and why you learn the most. What were the things that they were doing? How are they coaching? What was their style? Try to adopt some of that and try to remember what it was like when you're first coming up as an individual contributor and trying to learn how to become the best and trying to do it when you're drinking from a fire hose and you're overwhelmed. Um, think about the individual members of your team and what things you can do to put each of them in a position to be successful and take their personal goals and pull them together with their professional goals and have those conversations actively. Make it an ongoing thing. Don't talk about it once a year. Talk about it in an ongoing way so that when you're talking about KPIs and results, it's tied into what they're trying to solve for themselves outside the four walls of the office. I think that makes an incredible difference and to them will really put you on a pedestal mentally as a leader who made a difference in their lives. And they will always think about you, they'll always reflect on you, and they'll probably always sing your praises um, because most managers don't take the time to do it. And we talked about differentiation at the end there in selling, but that's how you differentiate yourself as a leader among the pack. That's the perfect place to leave it. Josh, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Matt. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And for everybody out there, thanks for listening. If you uh, liked it, if you liked what we're talking about, hit the hit the like button, hit subscribe wherever you're consuming the podcast. Go on LinkedIn, comment, give us your suggestions. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Share it with somebody else. I'm proud to host this conversation on behalf of Coach the Scale. And until next time, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.